This Can Do Podcast is brought to you by Blake Albina Thoroughbred Services. Blake Albina is a full-service bloodstock agency and consignment company representing clients at every major horse sale in the country. For more information, call Ron Blake at 859-396-4836 or Hunsley Albina at 859-621-0800. Whether an experienced owner or a newcomer to the game, Blake Albina has the knowledge and experience to help you achieve your goals in the thoroughbred industry. I got the horse right here, the name is Paul Revere, and here's a guy that says if the web is clear, can do, can do. Last week, we introduced you to Morty Mittenthal, a raconteur and storyteller of the First Order. Were Robert Frost to have written a poem about Morty, he would surely have entitled it The Many Roads Taken, as opposed to The Road Not Taken. As you will hear, though, those many roads taken have resulted in a life that is full of rich adventure and one that continues to this very day. John Steinbeck penned his American travelogue entitled Travels with Charlie. Here at Can Do, we offer you this Racing Through Life and Life Through Racing travelogue, which we very well could have called Travels with Morty. Enjoy! Having traveled the various East Coast and Midwest circuits with some well-known training outfits, Morty began to settle in on a career path, until he talked himself into a racing career using his native intelligence, love of racing, and life experience to focus on, heaven forfend, the betting public. Yeah, well, what, yeah, so I left the track a couple years after, you know, I was, I was on the track with um, Dutch Rovineer, Jolly, um, I guess I guess for close to three years, and then I went back okay. to Baltimore, and <clears throat> I was... I became a. I worked for a company called the Mat Man, and I I uh, was the Mat Man for a while. That's a whole another story. And then I got into advertising, and I it was a copywriter, and then um, uh, and then I was a DJ for a while. I DJ you know at at uh, clubs and stuff like that. And then the old forty fives and stuff. And then you know, but I was betting on the horses. You know, I, I would still obviously would go to the track and and bet on the horses, but. We didn't even have early bird betting in those days, and we, did, we certainly didn't have off-track where if Laurel was running, you couldn't go to Pimlico and bet Pimlico. You had to drive down to Laurel, you know. So I, I asked to see Chick Lang, the general manager, and I, I would talk to him sometimes. I'd say, Chick, why don't you have early bird betting? I mean, it would be great. People could stop here in the morning on their way to work, get some bets in, you know. Anyway, and, and so finally one day I was talking to him, and I said, you know, why don't you give me a job? I mean, you, you need somebody like me. And he said, well, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. I could be the fans man in the grandstand. You know, I could be the, the, the ambassador for the fans to represent them, to see what they want. You know, that, you know and he said, all right, I'll, that sounds good. You're on. And he paid me 300 bucks a week or whatever it was in those days was pretty good and he gave me a parking spot right, right in front there right where that day is anyway and it and so i became the and i came up with the title director of better relations b-e-t-t-o-r and then um uh, then he and i were talking and i said you know and i had I, the first year i had this thing called mort's board and i would put up the ch- changes that day um, so people could come by and, and see before they were announced that people would get there only could see what the changes were, the jockey changes and the overweights and the blinkers and all that. And by the way, we talked about the old, the old, uh, racing forum. They never showed blinkers. They never showed any of that. Yeah, you're right about that. I just remembered that, you know, 
Anyway, yeah, so you had to go to the shoe board too, right? If you wanted to, yeah, I had to go to the shoe board. Yeah. yeah, exactly. We never had a shoe board in Maryland. The shoe board was great in New York. That's true. Yeah, that was a big deal. But anyway, so I put up the changes, and then I put up my three best bets of the day. I had a chalkboard, and it was Mort's best bets of the day, and I, or and I, they were always long shots, and I and I, you know, so I figured if I hit one out of three, then it, it people are definitely yep. going to make money. So it was always long shots, and I'd always give an explanation why. You know, Ronnie Alfano claimed this horse, he, you know, he's given him time, or, you know, whatever, whatever the thing was. And then so that was the first year. Then the second year, um, Chick said, well, you know what, why don't, and I don't know if it was his idea or my idea, but this was before Harvey Pack had his show in New York, and, and we said, well, why don't we do, have our own TV, in-house TV? And so he, I mean, I get Chick a lot of credit. He built a beautiful studio downstairs right on the, in the grandstand with a big open window so people could look in as we're filming and, um, and then pictures of it. It was, it was really neat. And we, I had my own, own camera guy, uh, and Gene, who was a great guy. And, um, and we tape in, you know, uh, before the, before the races in the morning. And I would eat, I would pick all the races. Now, now I pick every race. I still have more sport for my top three, but I, but I would pick every race. And then I'd have interview. I'd bring in other handicappers. I'd run in the Swami who I told you about, who I know you'd love to talk to him anyway. Uh, Andy Byer would come on. Well, I'll tell you, Mort, if this horse doesn't win, I'm going to have to go live with my mother in Boca Raton. That's a very good Andy Byer right there. Oh, my God. I loved Andy Byer. He was such a good guy and and a great better. And I I was not a good better. I was a good handicapper, but he he really knew how to structure bets, and that's such a big part of this game, as you know. Anyway, um, so... So, yeah, I'd have him, and then when, when the Preakness would come around, it was really exciting. I, we would go out. I'd have, I'd have some trainers come into the studio and interview them there, but oftentimes we would just take the camera out to the barn, to the Preakness Stakes Barn, and I'd mm. interview uh, the owners and the trainers out at the Stakes Barn, which was really neat, kind of give people a different flavor, you know, different. But it was neat. And then uh, Crit Chick also that year built this thing called the Triple Crown Room uh, uh, right above the studio where there used to be some old depressing cafeteria he put money into this triple crown room and it was a big bar and they had bedding windows in there which they never did that before you always had to go to the you know, separate window so they had separate windows big bar with a really uh, neat girl who ran the bar and and it was just a great place to hang out so everybody hung out there and uh, and then could bet there and then there were TVs so one of one of the things we talked about was adding more TVs so we added TVs above the windows they never wanted to do that because they were afraid it would slow up the line well, right of people but it, actually, it does sometimes actually but but it's, it's good information but, too yeah it's information <laughs> yeah. you want to have but and you know people would yell alright buddy let's go come on okay you've read it enough let's go you know so people would move along and then I have a, a first time better window which was never done before where if you've never bet before then that window it says first time better so people knew to stay away from that window yeah yeah you know but that was really neat and they and you could go there and and, you know help the guy with there would be a really nice teller who would help you structure your bets and explain to you what because people would always bet to show and the horse would win and they tear up their tickets (laughs) they thought they had to they thought seriously oh my god we would find show tickets everywhere because they thought you had the horse had to come in third (laughs) can you imagine how hard that would be to try to figure out who's coming (laughs) in third Anyway, I could, I've picked the last place horse many times. I, I, maybe it's not as hard as it 
Exactly. No, I definitely <laughs> picked the last question. So, but then, and then he added a lot of, people didn't have any place to sit down, so he added a lot of benches. They did a complete paint job. To, you know, it was always such this depressing brown they had painted. So they, he, everything was white. He painted it all. I convinced him, no, you got to get rid of this earth tones. It's just, you know, I don't know who did the earth tones, but, and, uh, you know, it, it was great. And so we had really a fun, like, three years of, of and then I would go down to Laurel and do the same thing at Laurel. Now, Laurel didn't do it quite like, you know, he had, he had, we had the TV studio and stuff, but it wasn't quite the same as Pimlico. And, of course, that was my track. I grew up, I mean, it was such a, oh, my God, just walking through there, walking down through the Rogers Avenue gate where the old grandstand was, and you're underneath in the bowels of the old grandstand. And Chick said to me, he said, I want you to walk every inch this way. I want you to know every inch of this place. Mm -hmm. and, and I did. I yeah. took it to heart, you know. You know, if I had a good day, I remember this day I had a $37 horse up on the board and this big, heavy-set black woman and her friend, she came and met me outside. The, I came out of the studio, and she just hugged me and started dancing me around, you know, because she hit the horse, and she was so excited. You know, and that, that kind of... And the people were just so great. They were so appreciative and so that somebody finally was looking out for them. And it, it really, I mean, so it wasn't just talk only. And, and it was all because of Chick, I have to say. He, he went along with almost everything that I recommended. I, I don't think we ended up having the early bird betting that early. I think that still came later, but I, I, I didn't convince him to do that. But so I, but you, I recall, you know, you talked about like, embracing the yeah. media that was available at that time, the, the, the output media that was available at that time, you know, with TV, putting TVs up and the, the show on TV. And, um, you know, the, 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 the touches like the first time betters window and things like that. With so many more technology options available for things like output, streaming media, and um, things you could certainly do for you know newcomers to the game, it doesn't it feel like racing has gone? It maybe hasn't gone backwards, but it certainly hasn't advanced with what is available in terms of technology and outreach. Is that fair to say? Do you think? You know, I think I think it's fair to say. I think that one of the things, and again, you know. I'm such an old-time player, I cannot play the horses without the racing form. Do you know what I mean? I just, and I, I have to have, be able to have it in front of me. I can't sit at the computer and scroll a computer, and then, I mean, maybe you're, you're good at scrolling and then highlighting something. I don't, I don't know how to do that, to be honest with you. So i got to have that form, and i got to be able to mark it up in green or red or whatever color I want to use that day so I can, and so... You know, to me, to have, like, betting apps and things like that, it may help, like, the first-timer to enjoy his day out there. I don't know if they'll learn about the game. I've always felt that the only way you really learn this game is to learn how to read the racing form. I mean, it just it's just the way the game, that's where it all is. Now, maybe there's stuff online, too. I, you know, again, I'm not, I'm not into that, so maybe I'm the wrong person to ask that question. But, um, but I, I, for years, I sent letters. I wrote a letter when I first got here to Frank Stronick at the, at the Santa Anita. Chris McCarron was the uh, general manager at that time. And I, he gave me an audience, and I said, you know, you sh and again, based on the, my director of better relations thing, was, you know, you should make me director of better relations, but what we need to do is hire a lot of 
are retired guys who are here every day. The game is getting older. We're not we're not getting younger people in the game, and we could have these older guys who know how to read the form. And what we can do is we can advertise uh, in certain places to get young people to then sign up and come out only in a group of one or two. You can't have forget seminars, forget you know these things in the, at the beginning of the day where Jim Quinn would come and give a handicapping lesson to a bunch of people, right? And of course, they're all old people. They're, those <laughs> are the only people that came. But we need to get young people, and then if you have a mentor that literally can work with them for like a month in a row, they come out every Saturday, free admission, you buy them lunch, and you give these guys a pass you know, for life or, you know, for the meat, you know, and they'll do it for that. They love to do it. They want to be, they want to be needed too. That's part of, you know, how older people are, right? They, and then, but, but it can't, it, at the most, it could be a group of four, maybe two guys and, but at the most two to four, it can't be more than that. Cause you got to be able to sit around a table with the racing form and help him. Okay. Now do you see what this line means? That's, and then here's how to structure bets. And, but it, it would take, a, you know, at least a month or so. And then, you know, if you did that, if you could, if you could do that with a thousand betters in a meet, maybe you could even do 3,000 betters in a meet, you know, young people in a meet. And if a hundred of them turned into really guys that fell in love with the game and then they would teach, that's how they, you know, that's how I learned the game from Tom Ewell, right? I mean, I could have learned it from you. I could have learned it from Bill Mente. It doesn't matter somebody's going to then love to learn that and want to impart that to their buddies, their fraternity brothers or whatever. Right, and right. Because, be the wise guy. Yeah. You know, yeah. And it never went. I never could sell that idea. Racing is, as we discussed, a complicated sport with a high barrier to entry for those who seek to profit from it. But there are ways to bring fans into our fold, and there are ways not to do it as well. I was reminded of a conversation I had with Jonathan Kinchin in Season 4 of our podcast in which he advocated for free drink tickets for track attendees. Honestly, a free Bud Light makes a lot more sense to me as a way to attract fans to the track, which is the best way to get them to become followers of our sport, rather than a concert sponsored by Bud Light. You have these concerts, which are fine. You have beer festivals, right? And they all come out, and people will bet. They, you know, they don't know what they're doing, but they'll have a really fun day. But that may be the only day they'll come the whole year, or maybe they'll come back on Kentucky Derby Day because it's an experience. It's fun. Yeah, absolutely. But you're not, you're not making better. You're not making it, no, future better. Now, I, what concerts, you're talking about, I'm not sure. Thing, but. Yeah, the concerts thing drives me crazy. Those people show up, and they might watch a race or two, maybe, right? You know, But yeah, they'll get there sure. in time for the concert, not necessarily for the racing, right? No, and, and they might make a bet on their mother's maiden name. Or, you know, and yeah. fine, that's great. Yeah. Or pick a color they like, or, you know, that's okay. But that's not turning them into, into horse players. You know? Yeah, and they're gone. But with horse racing, it's so much more complicated than that. And But once you learn it, t- tell me, Bill, does it not get in your blood where you just have have to handicap. Yeah, it's a I mean, puzzle to be solved. You know, you know it, it. Yeah, it's a puzzle to be and solved. The payoffs exactly. are, yeah. you know, look, you know, I always talk about. People say to me sometimes, "Oh, you're a horse player. You must like going to a casino." I, say, I hate going to the casino. Why? Why? Because the odds are completely against you, and it's and it's you know yeah. it's completely random. Whereas, if I am disciplined, which is rare, uh, but if I am disciplined and I have an idea and I focus my, you know greenback ammunition on where I have an idea. I may not be right all the time, uh, but I'm going to be right Right. often enough that I'm going to pay for those ones that I missed on. And even those ones that I missed on, 
they may have been better bets than the ones that I hit on, you know, depending on how I structured them, you know. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, and that's not going to happen. You you have no edge. The house has all, th- you know, you go to a casino, the house has all the edge. We've had segments in the past where we had guests talk about big scores that they've had. Morty shared a couple with us. I mention them now because, as you will hear, one of them was shared with a group of younger fans who, I feel almost certain, became devotees of our sport that day. A real-life example of the type of mentoring program Morty mentioned earlier. Of course, no big score story from a horse player is complete without a lament that I should have bet more. Newcomers to our sport also might be interested in the discussion of horizontal versus vertical wagering. The two brags. One is I did I did have War Emblem earlier as soon as he won the... the uh, the, the Illinois the, Derby, uh, the Sportsman's Park. The Illinois Derby. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and here's a horse that at six furlongs goes 109, but at a mile and an eighth, he goes 48-112. That told on the front end. That told me, here's a horse. I told you this the other day. Here's a horse that'll relax, right? So he was my derby horse. And then, of course, when Baffert gets him, that didn't hurt. Hurt the price a little bit, but he still was a big price, um, which is amazing. What 20 to 1, I was. think, wasn't he? Wasn't he 20 to 1? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, 20 to 1, I think he ended up going off at 18 or something. But anyway, um, but I also loved a horse that Chris McCarron rode in the Kentucky Oaks called Farda Amiga, who was, uh, who was trained by Paula Lobo, and I had had another Paula Lobo horse called Pico Central in winning, uh, winning, winning, a, winning a sprint race here at Santa Anita and paid boxcars, so I knew he could train. Anyway, um, this horse... Fort Amiga, I mean, it was 30 to 1. I mean, it was insane. This horse was the only true closer in the race. You remember, that race was loaded with speed, speed, that Kentucky Oaks that yep. year. Yep. And and the Derby really didn't have much speed <laughs> with War <laughs> Emblem. Anyway, I bet a $10 double, and, of course, Fort Amiga won, and I was alive, and, you know, it came back. I, I won ten grand or whatever. Yeah, it was about ten grand on that bet. So, um, yeah, it was ten grand. So yep. that's one brag. But that was real. That was good. I didn't bet anything else. I had no other tickets. I had no savers. I had no nothing. That was it. Florida made a War Emblem goodbye. Now, the only thing I could kick myself, because I love War Emblem so much, that I could have maybe gone in and bet some tri I knew I'd have the double, I mean, the, the double one, right, if you win. So I could have put a little more. It didn't have to be so cheap. I could have went some money it into was, It was Baffert and Lucas, so. right? It was Baffert and Lucas yeah, and one, it, two. And, and one Lucas' choice was a big number, too. It was private Exactly, he was. So, proud citizen. I, proud yeah, citizen, yeah. It, yeah. Yep, proud citizen, exactly. So, but I I didn't do that. So that you know that that's the I guess I considered getting greedy. I'm not I'm not I'm not one to get greedy. But anyway, but I still kind of kick myself anyway. But but then the second one, the biggest one I've ever had, is a twenty four dollar four horse box on the Breeders Cup Juvenile when a horse called a knees won with Gary Stevens. He was he was thirty to one. Now a knees had run. I can't remember. I think he had won second or third in the Santa Anita Derby, or might have even won the Santa Anita Derby. It's like insane. Uh, not not the Santa Anita Derby. Yeah, the, the whatever the juvenile the was back then for the Santa yeah, Anita right, Derby. whatever. Yeah, yeah, the prep race. Anyway, he, I, I forget. He, but he ran a really good race. And again, there was the two favorites was uh, a horse of Lucas and a horse by Baffert. I, I have the chart upstairs, of course. Um, what's yeah, Chief, Chief Seattle, Seattle man, you were good. Them, Chief think. Seattle yeah. was one, and High Yield was the yes, other. Yes, yeah, yeah, go ahead, yep, yep, yep. Yeah, yep. And, and, but they were both both speed and pressers, and then there were some other speed, and 
anyway, I just expected the speed to fall apart. I really, you know, I just didn't expect expect they would. And also, I didn't like either one of their breeding for a mile and a sixteenth. That's right. I, I wasn't crazy about that. Anyway, so I loved Anise, had Anise, and then I did want to use those two, so I put them in the ticket. Um, and then the key to the race, I'm looking around, and I'm not seeing any other horse that I think can go this far and, and close. And so the horse that made the ticket was a horse called Maul of Kintyre, and he was from Ireland. Really? He had only run six. You know, he only run six furlongs, but he had great distance breeding. Stamina, sure. And yeah, he yeah. was he he was fifty fifty to one, I think thirty fifty to one. But I just figured I know this horse from Ireland is going to go a mile and see. I just know it now. If he doesn't, if he likes the dirt, I don't know. I have no clue. But I just, there was something in his breathing. I had the Mike Helm book. I looked back, and there was something that said this horse could take to the dirt. Anyway, that's it. That's that four-horse box. I'm sitting there at Santa Anita. The races were, I forget where they were that year. Anyway, I have to yeah, chart upstairs. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure. I don't remember where they were. Was it Gulfstream, maybe? Or might have been Gulfstream. Maybe been New York. I, I, might have been Gulfstream. Anyway, anyway so, yeah. Might have been Gulfstream. Yeah. So I'm sitting there, and I'm sitting there at Santa Anita. And Ivan was a great waiter who died last year, a beautiful man um, from Romania. And Jim was the maitre d'. He's still there, Jim O'Hara. Anyway, so these kids are sitting behind me at the table behind me at, at the turf club. And they were young, first-time kids. And they, had, and they asked who I liked, and I told them. And uh, so they just bet to win on a knees. And, uh, and so I, I have the ticket. I'm sitting there watching. Well, here, comes it, here they come. And it's just, I cannot lose this bet. I mean, a knees just blows by... Chief Seattle and high yield, and then I look, okay, where's the fourth horse? Here comes Maul of Kintyre, and he is like, he's maybe three lengths behind, you know, Chief Seattle, but he's like five lengths in front of the next horse, and I am like shaking. I am absolutely shaking, because this, I cannot lose this race. I'm coming down, unless somebody falls down, (laughs) and so they come across the wire. Of course, I know I have it. And I, it's the Superfecta box. And, I mean, again, if I had the courage of my conviction, I, I could have keyed, uh, you know, uh, a knees on top of two times two, right? But I, yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, but, yeah. again, I'm not getting greedy, but I boxed them. You know, I, I mean, it was kind of silly to box them, but I did box them. And I'm not much of a boxer, but in that case, I boxed so I'm sitting there waiting, and I and they all, these kids are so happy. They hit the winner, and these he was like thirty to one or something. And he's oh my god, they think I'm the greatest thing since I mean I am. They are just coming over and patting me on the back and slapping me and laughing and having oh they're just loving it. And I and they said, did you hit it? And I said, yeah, I hit it, and I hit actually hit the superfector. And they well, what's that? And I explained <laughs> what the superfector was, and and they looked at the board at the odds, and they said, oh my god, this this has got to be worth Two or three thousand. They look. I said, no. I'm feeling it's worth a little more than two or three thousand. <laughs> and then, sure enough, up comes twenty, twenty-five grand. This is what can happen. Twenty-four dollars can turn into twenty-five thousand, and it happens every week somewhere at some track. Right? I mean, and you know, now I've always been. I'm not a good. For some reason, I'm not a good. I've never hit a pick six. I've never even hit a pick five. I've I maybe hit a couple pick fours in my life. I'm, I'm not even good at pick threes. I've hit one pick three for a nice ticket, but I don't know why I'm not a good 
what they call the horizontal better. But I'm just not good at it. I don't know why. Um, I, I am good at vertical bets, but how do you stand on the, on you know, the horizontal I, versus I, the vertical? I was always a vertical better. Uh, my favorite bet for the long, longest time, and this is an interesting discussion because I'm really kind of changing my in the midst of changing my philosophy. My favorite bet for a long time was to find a race where there was a horse that I knew no question was going to finish in the top three, right? He, he is in there, right? You know, um, and it's usually, it's a, it's the six to five or the four to five, right? I mean, uh, and they don't always run in the top three, but you could feel pretty confident Mm -hmm. about it. And if I could then find a long shot who I felt very confident about as well, I would key the bet around those two and I would just put everybody else in every slot and I would do it at different dollar values. So for instance, if, the six to five ran on top, and my long shot horse ran, or my 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 real key horse ran second, and then right. whoever ran third, I would play that, let's say, for six dollars. And then if I had my, so you you would you would put the field in third. Yeah, yeah. You hit the all button in third, right? Okay. Yeah, but but yeah, I would also that only play. Costs you eight, that costs you. Yeah, six times I, eight cost you forty eight bucks, bucks or whatever. Let's yeah, say. Yeah. But I would also put my top choice on top of the eight to five with all. But I'd do that for a smaller right. unit value, right? Because sure, it's going to pay yeah. more. So I tried to basically right. level out the payouts by, by, by doing it that way. So that was my favorite right. bet for a long time. But, you know, you have to be right about two horses there, <laughs> okay? So, sure, sure. you know, you can go through, and I did. Um, I, I mean, there was one day at Saratoga, one Sunday at Saratoga, i never forget. I hit five of those trifectas that day. I mean, I was just... You hit, on five, of them. Five, of you them. hit five of them. Five of them. You hit five of them. Wow. I was just on fire. I walked out that day with uh, like $7,000. Um, wow. Wow. Really good it, day. Uh, with these incremental bets, which, which really, yeah. not just yeah. one big ticket, but you hit five of them. Yeah. yeah. And they were all worth whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So. It, I've never done well with Saratoga. Yeah. Well, but now, and this is an interesting conversation, uh, Morty, because I was just talking about a friend of mine with a friend of mine with a friend of mine about this the other day that now what's very frustrating about racing is you'll have a, like an there was just a race at Belmont the other day. Um, there were like eleven horses in it, five of them are confirmed front runners. I mean, just no question about it. Their their job right. is to right. go to the front, right? Right. Sure enough, they open up the gates. One goes out. The other four stay back. This is a mile turf. Yeah, yeah. mile turf race around one turn, uh, and the fraction is forty-seven and two. And I'm like, well, my closer is dead because you know. Mm-hmm. So I've gotten very frustrated with the yanking and tugging by the jockeys because you can never figure out who yeah. it is that's not going to take the lead. So right. I'm starting to think maybe I should become more of a horizontal better and just say, you know, these five look good in this race. Yeah, in terms of horizontal, the one thing is, and I talked to my friend about this, you got to. You can't force it, right? If you don't have a good idea about right. the races around it, then you don't want to be betting a, a horizontal. No, but no. knowing exactly. that you just have those two in that one leg, that you know, if you can get some good ideas about the other races, you know, right. your ticket can be potentially skinny, um, and or skinnier, and you know, you right. you know, you can. And look, if it comes in all chalk, uh, yeah, you know, then just live to live. Yeah, fight another day. Eventually, Morty's travels took him from the East Coast to the left coast, but as you will hear, his native curiosity and enthusiasm meant he was always going forward, always searching, always striving, and always succeeding. So, Morty, how did you end up in California then, from Baltimore? Well, um, well, that, uh, you know, I 
I was I had a lot agency in Baltimore. You know, this was back in 1990, and I had met this gal, and um, not my current wife, by the way. So I'm trying to whisper, you know, but no, she knows about her. But anyway, um, and uh, so and she wanted to come to California to have a job, and so I said, all right, well, I move into California, and again, I've always been someone who just kind of goes with the wind, and that's why I've always done it. It's sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not so good. But anyway, we came out here together, and um, we, we unfortunately, she and I only lasted three years, but I ended up staying, and I ended up doing a lot of different things, but I ended up uh, becoming a producer of infomercials and in the golf golf world, because I am, I am a good golfer, and I know golf, so they needed a producer that knew golf. I, I didn't, I, I had, and Adams had produced a couple of small commercials in Baltimore, mm-hmm. but just local stuff, you know. But I did have at least enough of a feel that I could learn the rest of the ropes. These were big budgets. These were, you know, half a million dollar budgets. Um, so I had to learn a, a lot, but I did learn that. But I knew the golf, and they didn't have anybody that knew the golf. So um, so I ended up uh, producing these golf infomercials, and many of them, if you're a golfer, you've seen them all. I mean, with some pretty famous golfers and teachers, you know, David Ledbetter and Butch mm. Harmon and mm-hmm. Lee Trevino and Jack Nicklaus, and I mean, all you name them, Nick Price, I've, I've worked with all of them. So I did that, and then... Um, my brother and I decided to, uh, uh, one of the guys that I had met in my golf world was a fellow named Eddie Smith, and he was good friends with Jerry Bailey, the, the, jo- the mm-hmm. jockey, Hulk, yeah. the jockey. And um, so Eddie called me and said, hey, you know, uh, how would you like to do a DVD with Jerry Bailey? You know, I, let me see if he'd like to do that. And I said, hey, that, that'd be awesome. Uh, Eddie and I got to be good friends, and he knew that I was a horse player, of course, and he died you know, going to the races together sometimes and stuff. But anyway, so he called Jerry, and so that's how it happened. So then I, I kind of left the company I was working with, um, the infomercial company, and my brother and I started our own company called Horseshoe Productions, and that's our first product was the Jerry Bailey DVDs. We ended up doing a two-DVD set, and Jerry was great, and um, I, we shot we shot some beautiful commercials. I used the guys that I had used on the golf stuff to shoot it, and we went up to Saratoga, spent a few days at Saratoga. They were really nice to us. All the guys, again, NYR and, and TRA were, uh, and NYRA, I should say, yeah, yeah. Um, were really, really nice, and um, let us have the run of the place, and I don't know if you ever saw the commercials, but I mean, just beautiful, beautiful stuff. We shot it on a special camera and kind of turned it into, I have a film look to it, and Jerry, so, you know, we see him on the rail, and he goes, you know, I've seen a lot, I've heard a lot, and I've learned a lot, and, you know, and, and so I do he remember this, goes, yeah, yeah, go ahead, yeah. Yeah, they were yeah. really gorgeous, and then the horse is going by and everything, and we did shot a lot of stuff with Bill Mott and the, in the uh, stables, and, and I had testimonials from Christoph Clement and Bill Mott mm. and, and Ron yeah. Anderson, his agent, just talking about how nobody knows you know, how to read the racing form like Jerry Bailey. Always, and I had a shot of him reading it outside the jocks room, and you know, and we talked about how that's how you have to learn this game. And then we did a, a really great ad in Sports Illustrated said, even if you only go to the track once a year, you need these DVDs, or you know, you need this DVD anyway. So, so it was very successful, and, and we. Yep. Sold it on TVG, obviously, and HRTV, and we ran a lot of spots there. And the, we, I had Der- Jerry, we did it in a studio here in San Diego, and, and I had Jerry at, like, Charlie Rose's table, you know, the, not, sure, yeah, not yeah, the Charlie Rose's looked on very fondly yeah. anymore, but it was that <laughs> Charlie Rose round table, yeah. and Jerry was, right. you know, and he and I 
spread the form up on the. You probably I don't know if you've seen the DVDs. I, but, I have um, seen pieces anyway. I think yeah. Yeah. Yep. Anyway. So anyway, so you know, we just we basically went over his concepts on how to read the form and, and handicapping, and I had my ideas that we discussed thrown in. I had a couple favorite things of mine that some he agreed with, some he didn't, but it was all you know very informative and and um, uh, and then we also then we had a whole section on trainers and a section on jockeys and a, and a section on how to read a horse when he comes out on the track, what you're looking for when they're warming up. So we had enough to fill two DVDs, an hour and a half on each one. So it was, it was a lot of stuff. It was great. And, you know, we sold them for twenty nine ninety five, and you could order two for 50 bucks or whatever it was. And, you know, and we sold it for a long time and it, and it did well. And that was our first product. And we went on. So, yeah, and he, we still stay in touch. I call him every year before the Derby to ask him who he likes, and you know, sometimes before the Breeders' Cup. And uh, so, Marty, but, uh, you are clearly an yeah. entrepreneurial guy. So, tell tell people too about your latest uh, invention that you're working on. Uh, uh, well, the latest thing we're we're working on it actually it'll be out in the fall. We've been working on it for a while, but it'll be available online in the for the fall football season. I hope there is a football season. It's called the Man Cave Pillow, and it's a a regular nice couch pillow, 16 by 16, and um, but uh, so on one side it's just a nice couch pillow, and um, we have, we're going to have it in uh, blue and red to start out, and then you flip it over, and there's two neoprene pockets, so you can sit there on the couch and put your beer in the pocket and keep it cold. You can keep the remote your remote control handy, or if you have a buddy over watching the game, you can both have a pocket to put your beer in, and that yeah. way you're not reaching for the night table, or you can sit on the floor and have it between you, and it's also great for um, tailgating. If you're tailgating, you can take it to the tailgate, and or if you have an RV, you can put it in the RV, or go camping, or if you have a boat, put it on the boat. So anyway, it's called the Man Authentic Man Cave Pillow, and I'll give the website, but it's not available yet, but it's... Uh, www.themancavepillow.com. Everybody talks about their man caves. You know, um, Dan Patrick and Colin Cowherd, everybody's always talking about their man caves. So. It's an old saw, but a relevant one. And I think Morty is a living embodiment of it. If you do something you love, you'll never work a day in your life. Not that Morty doesn't have some regrets. You mentioned to me when we first started talking, uh, you know, yeah. a couple of weeks ago, that, you know, if you... Do something you love. You're never going to feel like you're working, and and you clearly have managed to do that all your life, haven't you? Really? Well, I've done it most of the time. I, I would say when I first got to California in 1990, there was a recession hit, and I couldn't get a job in advertising, which I, I'd had a really nice reel and a nice book, and it was frustrating. So I had to literally walk the streets of L.A. for the convention for the visitors bureau selling memberships, and so I did that for a couple of years before I was able to get myself to Rawlings Golf and um, became the director of marketing for Rawlings Golf. That's how I got myself into the infomercial world. But for, for a few years there, it was, it was pretty rough. But mm -hmm. yeah, I still followed what I wanted to do. And I would say for the most part, my, my one regret I will share is that I didn't take the what I did at Pimlico. Um, ESPN came down and did a profile of me in the early days of ESPN. And uh, I don't I don't know if it'd be in their archives still yeah. or not, but yeah. um, but anyway, they came down and did the whole thing about Mortsboard and the TV thing, and it was like a good five-minute, six, seven-minute profile, and it was great, and uh, and I never followed that up. I should have, 
Uh, the one regret I have is I didn't go to Bristol after I left Pimlico instead of getting this job in PR and advertising in Baltimore, which is a really good job, paid a lot of money, and they wanted me, and that's part of my problem is they wanted me, and I felt like my ego was stroked, right? Mm. <laughs> um, and, it was, and it was good money, but I really wish I had gone to Bristol and said to ESPN, look, I'll come here and work for nothing. I just want to be your horse racing yeah, guy. And racing. They, knew I, they knew I could do it, and they didn't have anybody. It was early. It was like... You know, 1984 it was the infant days of, of ESPN, and I think I could have talked myself into a job. And who knows, I might have been, you know, when I see Randy Moss, who's, you know, he's a good handicapper. He's good, yep, he, yep. You know, he's a good handicapper. I have no invention, you know. Um, but when I see a guy like him, I, you know, it could have been me. So yeah. he's a, a certainly certainly see Hank Goldberg, who I think is a terrible handicapper. <laughs> I really do. He's just so chalky. And I like the fact too. Yeah, yeah, you know, exactly. Yeah. You know, and, you know, and yeah. so, but you know, it's Hammer and Hank because he has a nickname. It's like the Red Rifle, um, Andy Dalton. What is Rifle about Andy Dalton? Is it just an average arm, but he has these red hair, so he's the, <laughs> the Red, red Rifle. And Hank Goldberg is Hammer and Hank. Well, he doesn't hammer anything. I mean, you know. So it, yeah. I have to say that's the, that's the one regret in that uh, of regrets that I have that I, I didn't follow that dream. That was a dream that I just let go and always regretted that. As we wrapped up this delightful conversation, we discoursed on the strengths and weaknesses of public handicappers, how even after all these years, horse racing is a puzzle lovingly unwrapped, like the Sunday New York Times crossword, an adventure every time out, and the days when you can really make that habit pay. I can't thank Morty enough for a fascinating, entertaining conversation. I'll likely have Morty on again later this season when he and I will do a rapid-fire Breeders' Cup preview. But in the meantime, I hope you enjoyed Travels with Morty as much as I did. Thanks for joining us and listening at Can Do, the podcast where we celebrate heroes, history, and horse racing. Thanks. We'll talk to you again next week.